Ho, 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 motherfuckers. Welcome to the Christmas special here at Grease the Wheels. It's your Uncle Jimmy. It's not fucking Santa. There's no such thing as Santa. Sorry. Hate to burst your bubble. Hey, Merry Christmas from the uh, folks here at the Rock and Roll Garage. Eric, the producer, and myself. Uh, I hope it's a good one for you. I hope it's always a good one for you. I hope every day is a good one for you. All 365 of them. And, and I want to tell you something, too. Uh, I, and I said I would say it more often. I'm going to. I appreciate what you do. I know what you do. I don't take you for granted. I don't. I wish that people wouldn't take me for granted. But uh, what I do is not nearly as important as what some of you do. If I don't do my job, a few people don't get their car back. Oh, great big loss there. They're probably in a fucking loaner car anyway, because we have like 80 and we ever and we're literally down to zero almost every day. But some of you do important jobs like uh, keep warships going and airplanes flying and electro hydroelectric plants and other electric type plants cranking. Some of you keep the lights on. Some of you keep the heat going. Some of you fix the AC. Thank you very much for that shit, by the way. I'm uh, discovering how important AC is in Texas when it's 75 degrees in December and my AC kicks on. Whew. Hey, a little tough to get used to from a boy from uh, Western New York. Hey, listen, seriously, though, appreciate what you do. And at Christmas time, I hope that there's some other people who have found a way to appreciate what you do. It seems to be the uh, the theme of the season, a theme of the silly season. And sometimes really all I wish for in my stockings is that someone would just give me, give a shit. Really? That's all not shit so much per se, but they would give a shit as in they would care about what happens. And uh, you know what? Honestly, sometimes it does happen that way. But what I wanted to do was, and I wanted to try not to, I wanted to try hard not to rip off somebody else's Christmas story, you know, like uh, the, the night before Christmas and all through the house kind of shit. And uh, the, maybe Charles Dickens, a Christmas story or anything like that, or the Grinch who stole Christmas. I don't want to, I don't want to really rip that off, but I want to borrow on the theme of some of those stories and bring to you the story of a, of a, a, a dealership owner and, and a shop owner who, uh, well, for many years, didn't really appreciate the folks he had working for him like I do or like me. Uh, and and so kind of give to you uh, a story of maybe maybe some sort of a story of redemption, perhaps uh, maybe a story where you can see things from somebody else's point of view, or maybe they can see them from your point of view. And maybe we could see everything from everybody else's point of view, which would be really good nowadays because it seems like everybody has their own point of view and everybody else can just fuck off. And that's really not, uh, that's especially not what this season is about. And uh, and I think that, uh, you know, as a society, we're going to have to start moving forward and trying to see the other guy's point of view a little bit more uh, often, if we even if we don't agree with it, uh, we can at least appreciate it. And that's not something that's going on very much nowadays okay now the story starts with a gentleman named jackson his name is jackson hoff and he owns a, a small chevrolet and an oldsmobile dealer in a town called plank indiana which i'm sorry it's fictitious it doesn't exist okay but just for the storyline we're gonna say that he he is a a community leader of sorts in this plank uh indiana and uh, trust me when i tell you I, i've i've been to indiana one time and it almost killed me so uh, Indiana wants me, but Lord, I can't go back there. Um, and I wish I had you to talk to. So, uh, let me just get that one out of the way right now. Cause <laughs> not many of you will probably get that. And I apologize because that's me just being an asshole. But, uh, Jackson, 
Jackson's last name is Hoff. And uh, for good reason, people don't call him Jack. They just call him Jackson. He insists on that. And he owns a Chevrolet and an Oldsmobile dealer in the 1960s in Plank, Indiana. And his he and his wife have one son. His name is uh, Richard. And uh, his middle name is Peter. And it was actually completely lost on his dad that he named his son both his first name and his middle name after slang terms for a penis. Didn't think about it, just did it, and went ahead with it. So his son had to get picked on quite a bit in school, and his dad didn't know anything about it. But his dad was a uh, unusually harsh taskmaster. As soon as uh, Richard, or as they called him for short, RP or Rip, as soon as he was able to walk, Rip was asked to uh, help his father at the dealership as much as he could. And obviously, as a toddler, as a small child of probably four or five, maybe even six years old, he was desperate to help his father. He wanted to spend time with his parents, especially his dad. His dad was not home very much. He was always at the dealership uh, trying to keep that running and keep that going and, and actually basically lording over the whole operation and uh, being uh, a, a very frugal and uh, a very, uh, well, let's just say it, cheap man. He, he didn't feel like it was necessary to pay for a lot of different things, and he also felt that it was necessary for other people who bought things from him, such as service or cars. He thought it was necessary for those people to pay a premium price because he felt good uh, about the quality of the service and the cars that he sold and, uh, in the 1960s. This was uh, not uncommon. A lot of people carry, carried in the United States at least a lot of pride in what they did and, and uh, did it all with a great amount of affection for the, uh, the customer. Uh, but Mr. Mr. Hoff was uh, interested really basically in just making money and getting ahead that way. And uh, in those times, people didn't really earn a hell of a lot of money as a shop owner or as a dealership owner, you made uh, what you would call probably a very good living, but you weren't going to get rich by any stretch of the imagination. You had to uh, invest money in the building. You had to invest money in equipment. You had to invest money in the cars that you sold. You had to actually buy them. Uh, Sometimes you could floor plan them, but for the most part, you bought them. And then when you sold them for a profit, you had to figure out how much it cost to make that profit and so on and so forth. And as a dealership owner, costs added up and, and profits were eaten up by these costs. And so you didn't make a lot of money. And Mr. Hoff was keenly aware, very keenly aware of how much everything costs. He wasn't actually aware of what the value was, of what the value of the service to the vehicles of that community. He wasn't aware of the value of the of the vehicles that he sold to those people. He wasn't aware of the value of the people who worked for him. He wasn't even aware of the value of the building or of anything else. He wasn't even aware of the value of the brands, Oldsmobile, Chevrolet, General Motors, or even Hoff Motors, which is what his dealership was called, Hoff Motors. So with Mr. Hoff in charge, a lot of things, a lot of decisions, and a lot of things came down the pike that, uh, well, pointed him out as a man who uh, was very frugal and very cheap. And, And in any situation where money was involved, he would always take the low road and side with keeping his money. If somebody wanted a raise, uh, he would bargain with them to the point where they either didn't get a raise or they left or they just kept working for the same rate of pay. He was very frugal in that manner. And uh, some people would say like a Scrooge almost, I mean, to borrow from uh, other Christmas stories, that was the type of man that he was. And when his son became old enough to start working for him, well, of course, you can imagine a, a, a gentleman this stingy uh, did not feel that it was necessary to pay his son. After all, his son had been living at home and costing him money to live at home. And so uh, his son didn't get paid. 
And so he worked at the dealership for many years throughout the 60s and well into the 70s. And uh, he grew up at the dealership and he did absolutely everything there is to do at the dealership, from rearranging the cars in the parking lot to sweeping up the building, around the building, on the inside and the outside, from painting the goddamn building to uh, washing cars sometimes, to detailing them, vacuuming them out, prepping them for new car delivery. He even worked as a detailer for a little while. He never really actually got the hang of of buffing a car without burning the edges, but he did give it a shot. And he, he felt like if he practiced a little longer, he could probably get it down. Uh, he worked with the mechanics. Uh, he learned how to tell the difference between an Oldsmobile engine and a Chevrolet engine. And, and uh, he even helped assist with the transmission rebuilds on turbo 400s and turbo 350s and these sorts of things. And I actually became fairly mechanically inclined with that stuff and was uh you know requested in the shop to help out quite a bit and uh, especially when someone felt like they were getting ripped off by the mechanic and which you know of course was ridiculous the mechanic wasn't actually somebody who ever got paid directly for the work they did no mr hoff was the one who got the money and mr hoff kept the money and gave very little to the mechanics and this is why uh at times he had a tremendous amount of turnover in in the service department even in the parts department because uh the these, of course, in Mr. Hoff's eyes, were people that were basically just monkeys who could uh, hand a part to a, a technician who he probably also thought were monkeys as well. Um, I know people who do believe that or at least believe that, that that's not that far from the truth. But uh, Jackson's son, Rip, didn't, didn't actually believe that because these were people that he interacted with on a regular basis and they kind of took him under their wing and they taught him a lot about the car business and then one day when Jackson turned 16 which was the uh, driving age in his state uh, he asked his dad if he could get his driver's license and then maybe get a car and he pointed out to his father that his father had never actually paid him one red cent for any of the work he ever did at the dealership and he'd been working there Christ almighty almost 10 years 10 11 years he'd been working there you know obviously starting out just emptying the trash as a very very small child which hello was up against the law uh <clears throat> but uh you know even as a teenager up through the up through the years when he was 10 11 12 you know 13 he became a teenager and still not a not a red cent and his father would remind him when he asked for pay he'd say how much do you think i should charge you for dinner how much do you think I should charge you for room and board? And his son would look at him with a look of, of, of hurt in his eyes, you know, that he could even suggest that, you know, maybe a 10 or 11 or even a 13-year-old should pay room and board and pay for meals. But that was not something that occurred to Jackson. Jackson was going to make him pay. Jackson was not going to let him have a free ride. There was no way that was going to happen. You're costing me money. It cost me money to feed you. It cost me money to house you. His mother would shake her head and just realize that this was something that Jackson was going to enforce until the bitter end. There was no way that he was ever going to relent and give his son anything that amounted to anything that would equal a wage or any kind of profit from his work. And she would argue with Jackson at times that uh, she, she's setting a, he's setting a bad example for the boy, that you can't actually treat someone like a slave and that Abraham Lincoln had actually freed slaves well over 100 years ago. But these were all lost on Jackson. He would just use the same arguments with his wife that he did with his son. And look, he's cost, he costs money to keep that kid fed and uh, you know keep him alive and keep him with us and you know provide clothes and all these other sorts of things that a child needs. Uh, which I believe that, you know, obviously many of you and many people who have children just provide without really a thought about it. Their children are just, they're not, they're not really so much needy, but well, if you think about it, they are. And Jackson thought about this more than most. And, and he also thought about how much it cost him. So he turns 16 and he says to his father, he says, you know, I've been uh, riding my 
bike back and forth to work quite a bit and uh well it's getting pretty well worn and uh, i could uh, definitely uh come into work a little bit earlier and even work a little later and get more done if i had a car and jackson pointed out to him that he didn't have any money for a car and his mother at that particular point picked that time and that time and that place to step up and say well he's not going to earn any money if you don't pay him so i don't think it would be the most outrageous request for him to obtain a car. He has, uh, after all, done everything you asked him to and more and complained quite little when, if in fact, if I was your son, I would have moaned and complained a lot louder and a lot more often. Well, Jackson says, why don't you just go buy it for him yourself? And she said, all right, God damn it, I will. And she did. She bought him a car. And it wasn't really a very, a very nice car. And it wasn't even a new car. And it was something that he would probably have to fix quite often. It was an old AMC Gremlin. And uh, there was no other reason for her to buy him this car than it was really something that he knew would irritate Jackson because it wasn't an Oldsmobile and it wasn't a Chevrolet. And it just represented their relationship in the most profound way possible. And it needed some work. It needed an oil change and a valve cover gasket and cap and rotor and, and he could use some spark plugs. And because he'd helped the technicians at the shop quite a bit and they were very, very uh, appreciative of his help, they helped him get his AMC Kremlin going, which he named, he named his car Jackson's Hole. <laughs> oh. That's the stupidest fucking shit I think I've ever said. And so for short, he just called the car Jack. And uh, his dad kind of knew that it was a little dig at him. And he he didn't really hold a lot against him because actually, in reality, it didn't cost him a nickel to buy him this car. And guess what? He was able to get to work sooner and work more and stay later and do more. And Jackson thought, wow, it's a win-win for me. I get to keep my money and I get more work out of my son for free. But this particular argument this particular uh encounter with his father and with his mother coming through the way she had had really woke uh rip up to the situation and what was going on with his father and what kind of a man he was and so rip had always done very well in school and it was uh it was time as a junior in high school by this time to uh investigate and to look into going to college perhaps and rip was an excellent student he was excellent at everything uh he tried he was uh he He did well in science classes, he did well in math classes, and he did especially well in shop classes. And so his guidance counselor, who I think many people believe there's guidance counselors, (laughs) piece of crap, but his guidance counselor said, listen, you know, if you do well in the SATs, I could probably get you a scholarship to some of these schools. So he took SATs and he took uh, other assorted uh, classes and earned himself quite the handsome scholarship that he could use at any any one of a number of schools. And so when it came time to look for a college, he decided that it would be a really good idea to get as far away from his fucking father as he could. So he picked a college in his home state, but one that was across almost on the other side of the state, many, many miles away from Plank. And so when he informed his mother where he wanted to go to college, she winked at him and said, I think that that's probably a pretty good choice. But at the dinner table, when he brought up where he thought, where he was thinking about going to college, Jackson was was quite blown away by this. He says, you're going to be very, very far away. And he said, I know. And he said, well, how are you going to be able to work at the dealership if you if you work and go to school that far away? And he says, guess what? I won't. <laughs> he didn't add the maniacal laugh. That was your Uncle Jimmy throwing that in there. But 
Jackson got the point. He got the point right away, but he didn't see it from Rip's point of view. Oh, no, not at all. He's not going to do that. People who are cheap like that, people who are stingy, people who are money grubbers, they're never going to see anything from anybody else's point of view. They're only going to see things from their point of view. There is no grass on the other side. And for fuck's sake, it's not greener. So Jackson bellowed, well, you're not going to work for me anymore? Well, he decided right then and there that he should probably fire him, but his mother talked him out of it. And he said, no, go ahead. No, no, it's okay, mom. I'm, I'm, I'm through. I'm through working at Hoff Motors. I don't need to do that. I could get a job anywhere. And guess what? They'll fucking pay me. To this, Jackson said, well, then you can fucking live in your fucking car. And he said, all right, God damn it, I will. And so that night he slept in the gremlin while his mother and his father duked it out in the bedroom later on that evening. And his mother said, listen, he's your goddamn son. You're going to have to treat him like a human being. Can't be a piece of shit to him his whole life. You have to pay him. His father was indignant, but realized that he was losing his grip on his son and that he had no real grip on his son other than uh, that he was related to him and that he worked for him. And if he quit, he wasn't going to work for him. And if he didn't have that grip on him, he wasn't going to have any grip on him as his son because he was just going to turn his back on his father. And this was really what scared Jackson quite a bit. Jackson didn't want his son to hate him. He hated his own father. His own father was an abject failure during the Depression. And Jackson had to work really, really hard after getting out of the Army in World War II to put together a shop and then a dealership. And he was not going to let that opportunity go to waste. And so he ran his dealership with an iron fist. And his wife knew that the whole story because she'd been with him almost the whole time. And she actually worked for him for quite a bit, performing all kinds of different tasks. And she never got paid. She got money. She got money from him because they shared joint accounts and she was able to buy things like the house and clothes and furniture and these sorts of things. But he never considered that money any hers at all. He never considered that money theirs. He considered that money his and then he just let her spend some of it every once in a while. And they had kind of a row when he she spent some of it to buy him a car, which she had announced to him that uh, she was going to do this and uh, he was not going to have anything to say about it, or else he might not wake up the next morning. So we move on, and Rip decides he's going to continue to work for his father until he graduates from high school, and then he's going to go off to college. But graduation day comes around, and it's a Saturday, and they're going to be very, very busy on a Saturday down at Hoff Motors, and he should probably skip some of the graduation parties that he wants to go to to go to work that day. And guess what? Rip said, I don't fucking think so. And went to the graduation parties and got all kinds of fucked up because it was the 70s after all. And that's what kids did back then. They had a hell of a good time. And when he got home, he was all hammered. And his dad said, where were you? You didn't show up to work today. He said, I told you I wasn't going to work today. I was going to go to this graduation party that my friends were throwing. And then he went upstairs to go to bed. And his dad followed him upstairs and said, listen, if you're going to be like that, I should just fire you and kick you out of the house. He says, not again. And he slammed the door in his face and went to bed. His father knew he was losing his grip on his son. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Uncle Jimmy, you've laid the groundwork for a very horrible dealership owner. What does this have to do with Christmas? Well, uh, the first Christmas that came around after Rip had graduated from high school, he was at college a good 300 miles away. And he still had the gremlin. 
And the gremlins still worked okay because, I mean, he, like I said, he helped a lot of the mechanics out and he learned a lot from them. And he knew what to do if something went wrong with it, which it did, but he was always on top of it. And uh, Christmas time came around and his mother called him and said, are you going to come home for Christmas? And Christmas had always been one of these deals where his father, Jackson, had really gotten nobody anything anywhere. Not anybody at the dealership, not anybody at home. Really wasn't his thing. It was his mother's thing. And he said, you know what, mom? Christmas at, at home there with you and dad, It's always been Christmas there with you. And oh, by the way, dad's there too. He doesn't know anything about Christmas. And Christmas probably bugs the shit out of him because people want him to give them bonuses, you know, the employees and that. And uh, people in the community want him to be charitable and donate to charities and help people who are disadvantaged and homeless and have no food or maybe no shelter. And he never does anything like that. He's not very charitable at all. He's considered a pillar of the community, but only because he provides service on Chevrolets and Oldsmobiles and, uh, and people need that. And so he's friendly and nice to them as long as they're spending money with him. But he's not, he's not somebody who's going to return the favor. You know, if he buys something from somebody, I think he resents the fact that he has to buy something. The mother agreed and said, well, if you don't want to come home, that's fine. I can't force you. And he said, no. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here at school and I'm going to have a little Christmas dinner with a couple of friends of mine who don't have anywhere to go. And we'll, uh, we'll drink some beers and watch some football. And she said, okay, so when will I see you? And he goes, I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun up here. And Rip had gotten a job at a car dealership up in the town where he was going to school. He was going to school for business management and he was working at a car dealership and he was just a jack of all trades at the car dealership, not unlike at his dad's dealership. The difference was there was a paycheck involved. And Rip became quite a central figure at this car dealership because he knew the car business better than anybody there at that particular car business because of his dad's own car business. But he knew something his father didn't know was that people are motivated by money. People are motivated by appreciation. People are motivated by cash, appreciation, gifts, just a show of affection, something his father could never understand, never. So Rip actually didn't, he didn't tell his mother he had gotten a job because I think that his mother was afraid that he would never, ever come home. He would never come home because he worked an excessive amount of hours at Hoff Motors when he was a kid, while he was going to school there in elementary and junior high and high school in, in Plank, at Plank High. And he uh, he never had any time for any after-school activities. He never had any time for sports or any kind of any any kind of anything really with friends or or people he went to school with he never had time for any of that stuff and now he had plenty of time for that stuff and he found out that he was a friendly kid and that people liked him and that he could take charge of a situation this was something that was different about him than everybody else who worked at this new dealership that he worked at the new dealership was a ford dealer so he got a chance to learn about fords and how ford operates so he was getting some good real world experience but the experience at a dealership it's basically the same between a Ford and a GM dealership or even a Toyota or an Audi dealership or an Acura dealership or any kind of dealership. It's a business. It's a business where people try to sell cars, people try to sell parts, and people try to sell labor. And that's all there is to it. And when people bring in cars that are broken, they're upset. And when people are coming in to buy new cars, they don't. They have questions they don't have answers for. They have things that they want to know. And so he knew how to satiate all of that. He knew how to talk to customers that were trying to buy a car he knew how to overcome the objection he knew how to ease their mind he knew how to he knew how to reach them on their level whatever it was that that they were interested in whether it was the warranty or how many people it could hold or how safe it was or whether or not it had the latest options the latest features maybe even what kind of tires it had 
Rip was familiar with all of that stuff. He knew what people wanted to wanted to hear. He knew what they wanted to see. He knew how to sell cars. It wasn't that hard, really. All you have to do is listen. And people will tell you what they want, and then you just answer their questions. And if it's not something that they want, or if it's something different they want, well, you can provide that too sometimes. Because in the 70s, in the late 70s, and the early 80s, you know, if you went into a Ford dealer, they had big cars, little cars, they had medium-sized cars, and they had trucks. They had all kinds of trucks. They had Mustangs, and they had Galaxies, and, and Fairmonts, and all sorts of cars like this. The Pinto was finished pretty much, and it was considered an abject failure, even though they sold millions of them. And Rip knew this. Rip knew that, that people were coming in with Pintos, and they didn't want them anymore because they didn't feel safe. And that gave him an advantage. He said, listen, the car we have now, the car that replaced it, the Escort, that car, very safe now. They took all of the lessons they learned from the Pinto and incorporated it into this car. They took everything that was wrong with this car, fixed it, and made that car. And he was able, so he was able to sell the cars. But Rip was a, like I said, Rip was a man of all kinds of intelligence and experience and business savvy. And so he was good in the service department too. He knew when people came in with a problem that they were upset, as people usually are. And sometimes they were unreasonable too. And Rip knew this. So when he saw somebody, he could read the body language even before he got close enough to say who he was or how it was or ask them how they were. He would see that they were upset and he would go right into the mode where he could solve all of their problems. All you have to do is tell him what they are and he's good to go. So Rip learned the business. He learned the business well and he demonstrated to this particular dealership that he knew the business better than a lot of the people that worked there. And he was in school earning a master's of business, an MBA. And he was well on his way to becoming a dealership owner, really. That's kind of what he was uh, gunning for. He knew that someday his father would pass away and leave him Hoff Motors and that he would be running it. But as he worked at the dealership more and more over the course of the next few years, he became more and more and more valuable to the dealership owner. When asked when asked how he could be so learned, and he explained to the owner that he grew up on this business and he saw how it went and he saw how it went kind of badly. And he explained to a to the man running the building, he said, my, my father was an extremely rigid taskmaster who felt like he needed to spend money on nothing. And I learned, I learned from that experience that money is a very important motivating tool. It's a very important motivating tool. And although you don't want to give it up, if you don't, you're going to be giving up other things that would have cost you less than the money you're going to lose if they go away, which he thought was profound. And he said, I'll give you an example. Last year for a Christmas bonus, you gave everybody $100. And I heard from some of the employees that they felt like that wasn't enough. And so what I did was I went in and I said, listen, I said, stick with me next year. I'll get you, we'll get you a bigger bonus. If you can perform like you did this year, next year, we'll make sure that you get more. And that was the conversation. And that's why all the employees suddenly looked to Rip for the answers to their questions. Because he talked the owner into increasing the Christmas bonus the next year. He said, anybody who got a bonus last year and felt like it wasn't good enough, guess what? This year we're going to double it. And it did cost the company more money. But the, but the company made more money that year. Just based on a promise of more money at Christmas time. It was kind of ridiculous, but it pointed out how much motivation you can get from the, the almighty dollar. Of course, the owner of the dealership felt like Rip was just heaven sent. Because he had all the answers and everything he did seemed to be right. But he had to learn these he had to learn these lessons the hard way. It was very harsh. 
It was a harsh lesson. His father was a harsh taskmaster. And he didn't teach him how to run the build, how to run the business. He taught him how to run the business the wrong way. And over the course of the next four years, while he attended college and he worked at this dealership, he never went home for Christmas. His mother understood, but his father never did. His father never did. And that was because he found that the generosity of strangers that he had helped, the generosity of the people he worked with, who he was able to do things for and who appreciated the things that he did for them, were more likely to want to spend the holidays with him and, and and feel happy and feel blessed to have Rip in their life than his father Jackson did. Jackson felt like it was Rip's duty to come home for Christmas, to be there, to be a family, when he had never given him any indication whatsoever that that was the way it should be. He never did. He just thought that it was something that was born into him, maybe. I don't know. Who can get inside the mind of somebody who's cheap? Somebody who's stingy, somebody who squeezes a penny so hard that Lincoln is actually fucking screaming. You know, who can get inside of that that person's mind? How do you talk to that person? How do you relate to that person? Rip didn't know. Jackson wasn't going to let anybody else know how to get how it gets done. It was about three weeks before graduation. He was about to graduate with honors from State University with a master's in business. And the dealership that he worked at was interested completely and 100% in hiring him on full time and making him a sales manager with the notion that in a few years, possibly even just one or two even, that he could be the general manager. He was that adept at running the dealership. And the dealership seemed to run on him, even though he was there part-time most of the time, even though he was holed up in the customer waiting lounge doing his homework for college, even though he spent time in the shop helping the technicians with stuff, pushing cars in, charging batteries, maybe pulling the plastic off the seat so a car could be delivered, maybe even washing the goddamn thing, putting air in the tires. He did all that stuff. He mounted tires. He did alignments. He knew what an alignment was all about. He also knew that there wasn't really that much to it. The technicians at his old shop and the technicians at his new shop had informed him of what he needed to know, and he went ahead and did it. He worked as a service advisor when the service advising staff was short. He learned the names of many, many of the customers. He learned what they drive. He would see them in the grocery store and ask them how it's going. He was the kind of person that cared about what people thought about him, and he cared about how their lives were going and if their cars were running okay. There were many times that in the grocery store he would see people and he'd say, hey, how are you, Mrs. Jones? And she'd go, oh, I'm fine. You're that young man from the car dealership. Yeah, that's right. We uh, we had your Ma- Maverick in here not too long ago. Is everything okay with it? Oh, yeah, no, it runs fine. Are you due for an oil change pretty soon? And they would say, oh, I don't know, probably. How many, how many miles did you have on it when you were there last time? And he would get into the conversation and he would actually, this and this was sincere. It was a sincere thing where he said to the, he said to the uh, customer that he ran into in the grocery store, listen, if you find that you have right around 50,000 miles on your car, because I think you had about 40, 46, 47,000 last time we saw you. If you need an oil service, if you have 50,000 miles, you should probably get the oil change done. Here's my card. I'll give you 10% off of your oil service next time you come in. She, wow, that's great. I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you coming to our dealership to get your oil changed. I know that you can get that done anywhere, and you might even be able to get one of your kids or one of your grandkids to do it in the driveway. She said, oh, I'd be afraid to let him touch my car. I said, okay, you bring it to the pros. I'll give you 10 off. He was just that kind of a guy. He had learned how to be a nice guy and not frugal and not cheap because his father was exactly the opposite. Everything was business. He ran it with a tight fist. He was tight 
fisted with his money. He was stingy. He knew that wasn't the way to go. When he graduated from college, his father and his mother came to graduation and he introduced him to all the people that he worked for and all the people that he'd met as, and all of his friends. And it was amazing. All the people that he made friends with and worked for that loved him in the college town where he was. And his mother was like, wow, I didn't know that you had a following here. You're almost like a cult leader. And he just smiled. He just said, these people are just great people doing what they do. And all we do is help them out. And my friends, we drink a lot of beer. So of course they love me because I buy a lot of the time. But his father was almost ashen and had no expression on his face. And he was like, you have a lot of friends here. How did that happen? And at, at that point, at that particular point in time, it occurred to Jackson that he really didn't have any friends. Oh, he had a few people that he could talk to. He had a few friends he could call, or maybe he could rely on them at some point in time. But they knew him as a cheap, frugal bastard, and they didn't really want to help him. And they would because, well, they got their cars worked on at his place, and and they did a good job, and they never really handed out a discount of any kind. But still, I saw him as a pillar of the community. Uh, The Oldsmobile dealer and the Chevy dealership that he ran created jobs and helped keep the... uh, the community close together and moving and running. Um, But this was all just a plan to create profit for Jackson. But in this particular town, in this particular town where Rip had had worked and gone to school, he made friends with people because he cared about them and he helped them out. And there was no monetary value to any of it, even though it was priceless. There was no monetary value to it. And this was something that his father could not understand. And so when he graduated from college, he was offered this position at this dealership and he was going to remain in that town. And he thought to himself, how do I break this to my father? And he said, well, he said, I'm just going to have to do it. So they'd gone out to dinner after graduation and some of his friends were there and they had eh, probably a cocktail or two and it made it a little bit easier. And Rip turned to his dad and he said, dad, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to work at the car dealer here, the Ford dealer that I'm at. And uh, I'm not coming back to work for you. And his dad looked at him and said, I think I figured that out already. And he said, oh, you did? He goes, yeah, because they pay you, right? And he goes, yep. They pay me, but you know what? They pay me because I'm worth it. I do the work they need to get done, and I'm the kind of person who takes on tasks and helps people out, just like I was at your shop, but I get paid. He says, well, someday the business will be yours. I can't live forever. What are you going to do then? I go, well, Dad, we'll cross that path when we get to it. But if you would like, I could give you some pointers on how to make your business run a little bit better. He goes, if you think I've learned something in the last four years that you might not know, you could certainly uh, ask me and I will tell you how to run something different and have it run better. And his father looked at his mother. His mother shook his head and he said, yeah, I think that we we could do that. And so they had a discussion. They had a discussion right there over some drinks and some dinner with some friends and some family. And he said to him, he said, you can't keep every penny that you make. You have to pay people and you have to make people feel appreciated, which means sometimes you have to pay them more. I know that that goes against your rules. He goes, but every time you hire a new technician or you hire a new salesperson, you have to offer them more money just to get them to come to work for you, correct? Yes, that's correct. They don't want to work for minimum wage. I used to be able to hire mechanics to come work for me for minimum wage, but I can't do that anymore. I have to offer them more money if I want them to say yes to coming to work for us. He goes, what if you offered a dollar more than they even thought that you were going to give them. He said, why would I do that? That cuts into my profits. I go, suppose he turns so many hours a week and you make X amount of dollars more profit off of the labor that he creates. Is he worth the dollar to create four? Is he worth a dollar if he creates $10? 
Or is he worth a dollar if he even creates a dollar fifty more? Yes. The answer is yes. If he makes you more money than you're paying him, then he's worth it. And that was something that Jackson had never thought about. And he said, Well, I don't know if I could if I could do that because being a depression era individual and working as hard as he did and having actually uh, lived through uh, World War II and the Battle of the Bulge and these sorts of things and the, the conquest of Germany and the Normandy landing, he wasn't able to grasp the fact that times had changed and that people needed to earn more money to do things that are more complicated and they weren't going to do it for the minimum wage. They weren't going to do it for a wage that they used to do it for in 1965 or in, even in 1975. They needed to earn money to, to pay for things such as cars and houses and clothes for their children and school books and food and rent and all these sorts of things. But this was lost on Jackson. Still, it was lost on him. He wasn't sure how he could even do it. And he had a long talk with his wife and they realized, well, guess what? I'm gonna offer him a position to come work for me and we're gonna pay him. And the wife was had a tear in her eye because she, was, she wanted to have her son back in plank working at the dealership and running it with his father. But he lowballed the shit out of him and you know he did. You know he loved all the shit on him. Some of you people work for this guy. Some of you people work for a version of this guy. Some of you work for an automotive group that is a version of this guy. And I wonder to myself out loud, in the real time, in real time and in the real world, I wonder, what kind of a Christmas did you have at work? How much were you how much appreciation were you shown? How much was the bonus? Was it even a bonus of any kind? I don't know. You'll have to you'll have to send me messages on the uh, Facebook page to let me know if you got bonuses and what kind. In my years in a dealership, I have never, and I mean this honestly, and I have spent probably a good 35 years working in different car dealerships. That's actually closer to 40. I have spent probably 40 years working in different car dealerships. And Christmas time has come and gone many, many, many years. Not very often, almost never received any kind of a Christmas bonus or anything of the sort. There have been Christmas bonuses. I can't deny that, you know, somebody didn't slide me a hundred dollars or a gift card worth a few hundred dollars. I can't deny that, but it was a rarity. It was not something that was done with regularity at all. And most of the time, Christmas parties were considered the bonus. And if you didn't drink like I do, at least later on, then the Christmas party was kind of, I don't know, a waste of time, really. I mean, everybody else got drunk and falling down and sick even, but not me. So it didn't really pay off as a bonus for me. And they would always say, oh, did you have fun? Or was it a good time? Or did you, you know, did you, do you feel like you're appreciated from it? And to be a gracious person, I would say, oh, of course, you know, it was good. It was great. It was fun. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, no, it sucked. It fucking sucked. You threw a party. You're going to write it off. You got everybody drunk. And you made him forget that how much it sucks to work here. No, Jackson Hoff had decided to tender his son an offer to come be a general manager at the dealership because Jackson was getting up there in age and he felt like he wasn't going to be able to do it with the same amount of vigor as he had done for several years before. But his offer came in so much lower than the offer that he was going to receive from the Ford dealer. He just laughed. He said, really, Dad, that's the best you can do? Has anything I've told you gotten in through that thick, cheap skull of yours? And his father seemed offended and said, well, if you don't want to come work for me, then fuck you and left. And that was it. And that was the last time he saw him on Christmas because he didn't need that. Who needs that? Nobody needs that. You know, Christmas is a time where people are generous. And even if they missed a mark with what they're generous with, eh, they're still making an effort to be generous. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because in a climate that we have today, a lot of people who resemble a Jackson Hoff or a Jackoff, 
if you will, because that's where the story was going. People who don't appreciate the help that they have, people who feel like they need to keep every penny, people who feel like they don't need to provide you with a livable wage, even though you're providing them with a superior, greatly superior livable wage by capitalizing on the uh, labor that you create, by capitalizing on the work that you do. You find that you and your your cohorts, your uh, partners in crime, if you will, I mean that as a metaphor, I don't mean that literally, that your the fruits of your labor don't add up for you. They add up for everybody else, but they don't add up for you. That's the way I feel anyway. I feel like I personally, and I've said this many times before, and I'll say it one more time, I feel like the pay that I received is equitable for what I give them, but only because I don't have the things that most people have. I don't have a luxury uh, apartment or I don't have a house and I don't have a luxury automobile. And I don't live a life of luxury. I don't drink and carouse. I don't go out and party all the time. I'm not spending money like it like it was going out of style. I'm a fairly frugal person. I say that with the uh, with the sincerity of somebody who just doesn't buy a lot of things he doesn't need. Am I getting ahead? I don't know. What am I going to get if I get ahead? I don't know how to tell. I don't know how to even calculate it. I have no idea what I want. I have no idea how to get it. And for you, I think that all of you. And I mean, literally all of you, maybe there's a couple of you out there who are like me, who don't really have, or really just kind of wandering around trying to figure out what life's all about. I think the rest of you have it figured out. You have wives, you have kids, you have a home, you have friends, you have hobbies, and you have a job that doesn't pay you shit. It doesn't pay you shit. And yet all of the labor that you create is sold for so much more than you're paid for it. It's the same old message. It's just got a little Christmas kind of a story wrapped around it. To finish up the story, let me just put this in there, okay? Rip invited his mother and father to their annual Christmas party at the Ford dealership that he was now the assistant general manager at. And he really was a go-to guy who was well-liked. And he, like I said, he knew how to motivate people. He knew how to make them feel wanted. He knew how to show them appreciation. And he knew how to just gift them every once in a while, randomly, things that would help them with their lives and make them realize that they were appreciated and fondly and sincerely care about them. And more than that, caring about the people rather than the bottom line. So they have this Christmas party at this restaurant in town and it's ex- it's an expensive restaurant. It's not a McDonald's. It's not even a you know, it's not even like an Olive Garden or anything like that. It's a restaurant where good quality uh, it's it's a good quality, high quality restaurant. And it is booked for the holiday party for this particular Ford dealer that Rip works for. And he invited his parents as his plus one and two. When his father shows up, because he hadn't seen his son in a long time and it had been a, many Christmases where he had not come home, his mother had implored that they both go. They had gifts for everybody. They had gifts for everybody. And these were not cheap gifts. This was a a, a fantastic year for this particular dealership. And in many ways... Rip was somewhat responsible for some of this, but he didn't take any of the credit for it because he wasn't the one who did all the work. He was the one who who showed all the people who did all the work that they were going to be appreciated for what they do. And in the spirit of Christmas, he wanted to make a grand gesture. And believe me, it was well-received. The food was great. The drink was great. The conversation was even better. And of course, whenever you add the drink, the conversation gets a little raucous and things start to get a little out of hand. And some of the people came up to Mr. Hoff and said, you know, your boy makes a big difference in our place. He makes a big difference. We love him. He got a tear in his eye because he'd never heard that from anybody who worked from him. He'd never heard that from anybody that they appreciated what he did. Not at all. Not ever. 
and his wife had to had to grip his arm and he was shaking because he'd never heard these things said about himself but here they were saying about his son and he realized that his son really did have the formula his son really did know what he was up to that his son was well liked and he was sincere in his messages to the, to the people that worked with him he was sincere in his appreciation that he showed these these members of his staff everyone from the carporters and the lot kids down to the janitors and the wash guys to the mechanics and the parts guys up to the salesmen and the and the finance people all of these people they made the whole damn thing work rip knew it he, he knew that they were important and that they work hard and he he knew that they needed to be appreciated and when he asked how much the christmas party was worth how much it cost to throw the christmas party and rip was ready for this question from his father he was ready for this question because he knew his father he said wow how much is this all costing you and he looked out across the crowd and he saw that everyone was smiling and having a good time and everything was everything was right and he knew all of these people were good quality people who he needed to have working for him to continue to enjoy success and you know what he said he said this shit is priceless dad it's priceless you can't buy this you can't buy what these people are feeling right now you can't buy it it's not for sale so whatever the cost is it's worth it i want to take this opportunity at this time to offer you all greetings season's greetings regardless of your religion and regardless of your race i want you all to be doing really really well in 2022 2021 turned out to be only slightly less of a cluster fuck than 2020 and i'm sorry i couldn't help with it uh i just kept working i put my head down i said whatever we got a new president out of it uh he well he's a new president that's all i'm gonna say about him uh here in the united states anyway you didn't get it you may not have gotten a new president in your country wherever you are but 2023 uh the way they're talking about this whole omnicron which is crap uh it sounds like a, a shitty 70s disney video game i think that 2022 is going to be an even better year and i think that by the end of it we will be in an era that i like to take credit for for coining the phrase post-corona. With the supply shortages that we have and consequently the automobile shortages that we have, the laws of supply and demand are smacking our car, our dealership owners and our shop owners right in the fucking face. And the fact that there's very few of us, very few of us wrench-twisting bastards out there fixing shit for people, that there's very few of us out there who are seeking jobs, that there's very few of us out there who are actually gonna take some of these jobs that these people are posting ad infinitum. Our value is going to continue to increase every year until perhaps whenever. I don't I don't actually actually see any point in time where our value will be decreasing. And wages are going to have to go up. They can't continue to languish in the uh median pay range of sixty thousand dollars a year. Forget that shit, okay? Don't take those jobs. Let those people know that's not enough fucking money. You know, if I had, if I didn't have a need for money in my life, which I almost really don't, but if I didn't have a need for money in my life, I would go around and apply for jobs as mechanics everywhere. And then when they call me in for an interview and tell me how they're going to pay me, I would stand up and say, that's not enough, asshole, and walk out the door. You need to pay more, jackass. You need to pay more. I would love to walk into every shop and every dealership in the country after having applied for a job there and remind the general manager or the service manager or whoever the fuck is interviewing that they don't pay enough and fucking leave, probably throwing them the finger as I leave, spitting my gum out in their ashtray, 
or kicking over their desk, maybe knocking the awards that they get from their company on, off the wall and onto the floor, or maybe just trashing their office in some way, shape, or form, you know? Maybe showing up for an interview with a beer, maybe have a <laughs> fucking joint hanging out of my mouth. You people don't pay enough. Don't be jack-offs, okay? <laughs> be more like Rip. Uh, I hope that this little tale hasn't really... uh uh, cause you to think less of me. Uh, well, I really don't care uh, what people think of me. I'm I'm way past that shit. Okay, but uh, I just want to let you know, and 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 in the most sincere manner, is that I really, honestly do appreciate what you do. I am somewhat familiar with what you do. I'm also somewhat familiar with the way that this world would not work without you. It would it would really be the dawning of an absolute apocalypse, minus the zombies, and who knows, maybe that that would take over at some point in time, if we just stopped fixing all the shit that gets broken, you know, if the power went out permanently, if the water shut off permanently, if nobody could get around with an automobile permanently. No, it's a Christmas time and and it's a Christmas time thing for people to appreciate what they have, to look back on the year and remark that they were glad they have what they have. And maybe next year we'll hold more generous times for all of us not just us mechanics, not just us people who fix things, not just us blue-collar workers, not just us people who go to work with work shoes on and work pants and a uniform on. Hey, It's not just that. It's everybody. Everything starts to look up, you know? The the, the grocery stores have enough employees and the, and the convenience stores have enough employees to stay open 24 hours a day like they used to, you know? These sorts of things, okay? All right, so... With a, a hearty Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, let's look forward to 2020 and let's uh, let's try to engage our employers and get them to stop being jack-offs and being more like Rip. Anyway, to, to finish up the story and then we'll get out of here, okay? Rip does eventually uh, inherit his father's dealership, but he also buys the Ford dealer and becomes an automotive group owner and they call it Hoff Automotive and... Uh, it's it's of course it's fictitious, but they do a good job of taking care of people in two separate towns in Indiana, and uh, people are happy to go there, and they have very high standards, and their employees have very high standards, and they are uh, well compensated for what they do, and the company makes a very good profit. It's a fairly modest profit still, but it's a it's a good profit. It's the kind of honest, hardworking profit that a dealership can make and still feel like it's doing right by its employees. And its customers, okay? So maybe you could pick that as a Christmas fantasy. <laughs> I don't know of any place that's really like that too much. But uh, maybe maybe it exists out there somewhere other than in the mind of your Uncle Jimmy, all right? All right, so again, Merry Christmas, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to peace out on you, uh, and I do that this way. See you.